I think we need to get better at controlling the technology rather than allowing it to control us. When I talk about neurological hijacking, it's based on an abuse of dopamine. The likes, the, the pings, the buzzes, the vibrations. These machines are constantly vying for our attention every minute of the day. So we need to get better at understanding that and being more disciplined about how we use those devices. Welcome back to Everyday Endorphins. You just heard from Bob Wigley. Bob is the author of Born Digital, the story of a distracted generation. In his book, he examines how our attention has become neurologically hijacked and presents a call to action urging society to re-examine its relationship to technology. Bob has an incredible career. Aside from his book, he's the chairman of UK Finance and sits on the UK's Economic Crime Strategic Board, co-chaired by the Chancellor and the Home Secretary. During 2016 and 2017, he chaired Victoria Beckham's fashion business, and he spent a career in finance, rising to be the EMEA chairman of Merrill Lynch and a member of the board of the Bank of England during the 2008 financial crisis. In this episode, Bob and I talk about the increasing popularity of social media and how that's resulted in a decline in our mental health, especially among Gen Zers. Through a combination of mindfulness, education, responsible software design, and regulation, Bob shares what we can do to control big tech rather than letting it control us. I am so excited for you all to hear this episode. This is a topic that I've been thinking a lot about recently because we've all seen how addicted we are to our phones. And if you've watched The Social Dilemma, then you especially know what I'm talking about. And Bob has incredible experience and his book is really amazing. So I encourage you all to check it out, especially after listening to this episode. Before we get into it, I have a brief message from my sponsor, Anchor. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, Bob. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Stella, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. And congratulations. Yesterday, you published your book, Born Digital, The Story of a Distracted Generation. How does it feel now to have it out there in the public? It's really exciting. Uh, And actually, one of the things that's come out of writing the book is a new uh, respect for authors. Now I understand what goes into writing a book. It's, (laughs) It's a mammoth exercise. Oh, I'm sure. I actually interviewed a friend of mine at WashU who is in the process of publishing her own book. So she's talked a lot about how challenging it is and how much work and energy goes into doing it. So it's just amazing that, you know, it's out there now. And I'm so excited for everyone to get a copy and learn more about everything that you have to share around how we're living in such a distracted generation right now. Thank you. Really, really appreciate your your support. Today, we're here to really talk about how to engage with technology in a more mindful way, or rather how technology has impacted ourselves for the better or for the worse. You talk about the importance of re-engineering our world so that we can give better attention to what matters. This is brought up in the book. And I'm curious, you know, how do you envision this to look like? How can we 
re-engineer our world so that we can direct our attention with more intention. So the whole thesis of the book is that we are, as a society, suffering what I call a distraction crisis because our attention is continually, uh, what I call, neurologically hijacked by these weapons of mass distraction that we carry around with us, these, these supercomputers and uh, world-class film studios that we carry in our pockets and have become almost like a prosthetic attached to our our arms like a third hand. Uh, and um, ultimately what's happening is that our attention is being focused not on what we want to focus on, but what big tech wants us to want to focus on. And I think for your generation, rather than mine, on the basis that we grew up in a time when we didn't have these devices, for your generation, that is profoundly life-shaping. A couple of interesting stats is that 70% of parents are worried about how much time their children are spending on screen. I'll come back to that in a minute. And interestingly, 54% of Gen Z say their parents would be even more worried than they already are if they really knew what went on on social media. So those are a couple of interesting sort of opening stats. Um, but I think my, my central concern in the book is this, that over the last 10 years, as these technologies have become ubiquitous and we use them in every aspect of daily life, whether it be entertainment or uh, connecting with our friends or shopping. So too have other things changed in society. And unfortunately, the rate of adolescent uh, anxiety, unhappiness, loneliness, depression, and ultimately self-harm and suicide has, broadly speaking, doubled over the last 10 years. Now, some of that you can put down to the fact that it's now easier to talk about mental health maybe than it was 10 years ago. And some of it you can definitely put down to societal changes. I mean, I talk in the book a lot about the other things that have changed over the last 10 years, the decline of the nuclear family, the fact that we're eating less together, communal eating, which is a really important place to develop empathy, the changing nature of workplaces, the decline of religion, the decline of marriage, the different kinds of relationships that youngsters have with each other, what I call encounters, not relationships. So there's a lot going on here, but, uh, but, uh, and, and, the, and the truth is, the academic research does not prove that there is a causality between the rise of technology and these negative factors that I've talked about. But I don't believe it's a coincidence. So I think we need to get better at controlling the technology rather than allowing it to control us. And in the book, I talk about you know the various ways we can do that. One is, of course, for, our, for, for your generation and for all of us, actually, just to be more aware of how our attention is grabbed by these devices in a in a very deliberate attempt to keep our attention. And it, it is, when I, when I talk about neurological hijacking, it's, it's based on an abuse of dopamine. Um, you know, the likes, the, the pings, the buzzes, the vibrations. These machines are constantly vying for our attention every minute of the day. So we need to get better at understanding that and being more disciplined about how we use those devices. One big area is before sleep. So we know, don't we, that most youngsters, and I think quite a lot of adults, take their phones to the bedroom and probably the very last thing they do almost before they turn the light out to go to sleep is to, is to be on their devices. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even on my computer, I will watch Netflix or something on Hulu and that's, that's the last thing I do before going to bed. And when I wake up, I look at my phone first thing, which I know is such a bad habit <laughs> and it's so hard to break. Probably less bad in the morning, but at night, what you're doing, of course, is is sending blue light signals to your brain, um, which is telling you to wake up. It's basically the equivalent of inducing jet lag just before you try and go to sleep. Why is that a problem? Well, we know that youngsters complain in the surveys about lack of sleep. Uh, interestingly, the World Health Organization, before it became uh, you know preoccupied with COVID, had just put out a warning saying that we're suffering from a global sleep epidemic. 
or loss of sleep epidemic, more to the point. And your University of Michigan did a big study on this with similar conclusions. We know that 80% of people take their phone to the bedroom. And as, as I said, the last thing they do before they try and sleep is, is probably be on a device. Now, why is that a problem? Well, apart from the fact that it makes people drowsy the following day because they haven't had enough sleep, many talk about how the devices and, and their addictions to them stop them studying um, and stop them conversing with their friends face to face. So this is not a trivial issue. So first of all, we need to get more disciplined. We need to understand what we're doing to ourselves and get better at it. I think parents, too, need to be more disciplined with their children, just talking to them about the difference between an on and an offline relationship and understanding some of the issues around online relationships and their relationship with the Internet. I think educators could introduce courses in schools and colleges in what I call responsible Internet use or uh, what some people have called digital citizenship, uh, because we can't fool ourselves that we're not going to use the devices. The, the devices do everything for us. You know, as I said, whether providing you with entertainment in the form of Netflix or conversing with your friends through Snapchat or Instagram or providing you with education. So we're going to use them or we're going to shop on them, right? We're going it, to, it's just the way it is, but we have to be more disciplined about it. So educators can definitely help. But ultimately, what we really need is for the social media companies and the, the big tech and app designers to build safety in at the point of design. We need a more responsible software design industry to think about us rather than just making profit when they design these apps. And then finally, since I don't think we can rely on the big techs to reform themselves, I'm afraid, we just probably need more regulation. We need the regulators to come in and set some parameters around the design of these apps and platforms to try and help us wrestle back control of our attention. It's our attention. We own it. We need to kind of re-own it. Absolutely. And I mean, this reminds me a lot of the social dilemma where Tristan Harris realized, you know, how addicting these these phones are and the way that technology is designed on the software engineering side. I think in the documentary, he talks about like the slot machine effect. So the way in which these apps are built out is to cause this increased anticipation and really relates to your point about dopamine. So the release of dopamine signals pleasure and Actually, then when there's increased anticipation, you're you really want it more. And so the way our phones are designed, never knowing if you're going to have a notification or never knowing what you're going to see if you're scrolling along Facebook or Instagram, that's really is what's keeping us hooked. It's even more than that because dopamine has less effect on the second and third dose. It's basically designed to be addictive in the sense that the second one gives you less of a less of a hit than the first. The third one gives you less. So you need more and more just to stay still. Absolutely. And that's why we just constantly gravitate towards our phones. And, you know, as you mentioned, it is this double-edged sword because technology can be so beneficial. It, it can help us connect with others across the world. And especially during the pandemic, when we're forced to be isolated, we've now turned to Zoom and FaceTime and other forms of digital communication to feel as if we're staying connected to other people. But ironic uh enough, it still feels like we're even more divided now. Well, so I think there is a very significant difference between connecting through messaging. And one of the things, you know, I, I note about your generation is that you basically prefer messaging to talking. Talking, in my sense, is literally meeting physically and talking face to face. OK, your generation prefers literally messaging to talking. And indeed, there was a survey in America recently which said if you had a choice be between deleting one app from your phone, which is kind of the one you, you least want to use. And it was actually voice calling. Right. The actual ability to talk to a human being through voice was the one that people would delete. 
Um, That's and, really and problem, sad to think about. That is sad. Now, the reason it's a particular problem, and maybe in one sense, COVID has been helpful here, is at least is forcing people to connect face to face like we are now on, on, on Zoom, is that um, technology, without necessarily doing this intentionally, systematically attacks all the place that my generation would have developed empathy. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if I start talking to you, Stella, and I start saying something that you don't like, you're going to start wincing or frowning, or I will, be, I will tell immediately from the visual clues that your body language send me that you don't like what I'm saying or you don't agree with it. And that forces me to aim off. If I send you a message, I don't see that reaction. And this is why we often see uh, conflict escalating online much more quickly than it would in, in, a, in an offline environment because you're not getting those visual clues. Now, the question is, if you spread that right across a generation and say, this is the primary method of communication, messaging, not talking, does that mean that we all have stunted empathy development? And, and then if that's true, which I fear it is, then the issue is, since empathy is what ultimately stops society, it stops us all from killing each other, it's what, what, it's what forces us to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and see things from someone else's point of view. Is it any surprise that society delay is probably more polarized than it's ever been in history? You talk a lot about in the book how social media abuses natural empathy. And so by abusing this natural empathy, then you feel inclined to use social media even more so. I agree with you. Empathy is like this fundamental quality that allows people to step inside other people's shoes and really understand their perspective and where they're coming from. And especially, you know, when you're communicating through your phone or through a digital device, it's very easy to misinterpret a message. And it's very easy to also catch on to passive aggressive tones. And so that can also create conflict. And when you're not having that in-person face-to-face communication, all those visual cues are in essence, they're gone, as you mentioned. But it's, it's very shocking to hear how my generation would prefer to just delete the, the voice message app. That That's really sad to me. And I think, I mean, hopefully now, as things start to come back to a bit more normalcy out of the pandemic, hopefully people now will, will value the importance of in-person interaction because we've been, it's been taken away from us for so long. Well, let's hope so. I think that's, that's, that's really important. And maybe that, maybe that is something that at the end of COVID will be a benefit. Yeah. And you also talk about people going through digital detoxes, like through different case studies that you present in your book. These digital detoxes seem to be like someone being on Instagram and then feeling like their mental health is kind of plummeting. They're not really interested in using the app anymore. They're actually realizing how detrimental the app is to their overall well-being, so they delete it. And maybe they're on this detox for five to six months, but then ultimately they experience a rebound. They just decide to download it again. And I've had this experience as well, where I've deleted apps like Snapchat or Instagram for a period of time, but then I felt, okay, like I'm ready to go back onto the app. So I'm going to re-download it again while still knowing the negative effects it's going to have on my well-being. And so I'm really curious, like, why is this something we see? Let's take the two parts separately. First of all, why, why is it negative? Why are they negative? Well, the reason is that negative emotions are just scientifically more engaging than positive ones. So, and the neuroscientists who design the algorithms that drive social media know this. So they are in effect designed to be negative on balance, right? Um, you know, bad news travels further and faster on social media than it ever would do in real life. I read an interesting uh, statistic when I was researching the book that said that 5% of people in the world only 
um, experience a truly moral misdeed at any point in their lives, right? But on social media, if one person experiences a truly moral misdeed, everyone experiences it five minutes later because it's out there for everyone to see. So it's kind of set up to spread bad news. And as I said, the neuroscientists know that we're more engaged by negativity than we are, sadly, by positivity. One of the people I met in the course of uh, researching the book was a girl called Maddie Freeman, who is from Virginia, I think. She's now 16, and she's lost, lost four friends to suicide in the last two years. And she puts this at least partly at the door of social media overuse. When I met her in, a, in actually a very interesting competition, which was organized to encourage Gen Z uh, social entrepreneurs to come up with solutions to digital overload. And her, her idea was to have um, a no social media November. So I don't know whether it's the same in the States, but in the UK, every November, we have a thing called Movember, which is where if you don't have a mustache, you, you grow one. And if you do have one, you, 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 you shave it off for a month, right? And it's kind of all done to raise money for charity. So her idea was, well, forget the moustache. Let's just detox for a month and not go on social media. So I met her in the course of judging this competition. I, I thought her idea was brilliant. Um, and I talked to her afterwards and she took me through what had happened with her friends. One of the most shocking aspects of which was the self-harm websites that several of them had been on where, and, and just, just a quick kind of stat, the rate of self-harm in nine to 12 year olds in the UK uh, in the last couple of years has uh, doubled. Now, Honestly, when I was nine, I don't if you'd said the word self-harm to me, I have I don't think I'd have had any clue what you were talking. I had no idea what that would have meant. Yeah, there's I like no concept for that at such a young age. And I certainly wouldn't have had any idea how to do it. What she showed me was was self-harm websites, which are like, you know how on Instagram people compare their their average self or their worst self with everyone else's best self. That's kind of the basis of Instagram. Well, this is kind of like that. So this is a self-harm website where we have sorry, self-harm website where people would go and cut themselves and they would then show themselves on this site. And it was almost like a badge of honor. The, wor the, wor the worse your cut, the better it was. You know, these are teenage girls. I was deeply shocked by that. And, you know, unfortunately, in the case of some of her friends, this led to, to worse. Um, and these were the websites that her friends were, were on at that time. Correct. And had become hooked on, yeah. Wow. And so, that, I mean, that, per that perpetuates that desire to then engage in that sort of behavior. It's sort of a bit like gaming, gaming addiction, where you're lured into what the uh, neuroscientists call a state of near continuous failure. As soon as you get better at the game, they just give you a harder game. And that's the whole, that's the whole basis on which sort of video mm -hmm. gaming works, right? Right. And you it's talk a lot like about that, you know, in your book, you talk about video gaming and how it's incredibly addictive, just like gambling. There's now, I, I, you know, I think there's opportunity to make, there's ethical decision making that can be made in terms of now creating better video games or video games that are actually good for someone's well-being, except then how are these video gaming industries going to actually make money if they're not addicting? Of course they're addicting because they're designed by the very same people who've learned how the gambling industry works and they use precisely the same techniques. I think where you need to go is look at what's happened in the worst countries in the world for gaming. So Japan, China, South Korea have massive gaming addiction issues, which are quite widespread. They, they have gaming addiction clinics in these countries where they cheat, they, they treat uh, not just ch you know, children, but adults who have the problem. But they've also, in some cases, brought in laws. I think it's uh, in Japan where it's actually illegal to video game between midnight and six in the morning. They literally turn off the games during that time so you cannot game in the night it, it's a massive problem and you know if we're worried about where it might go in the states or in the uk 
look at the worst places in the world and see what might happen and then work out whether we don't need to do something about it. Wow. I didn't even know that they have that regulation in Japan. Is that what you envision for when you earlier spoke about how we need to make, you know, we need to have more regulation on how we spend our time and attention towards these devices, like taking it one step further? Well, there's a concept of responsible design. So the software design industry could reform itself and say, look, we need to find a better balance between entertaining people, educating them and doing good for society and making money on the other hand. Okay, at the moment, it's very clear where the balance is, which is very much promoting making money. So we could, you know, these these software designers could reform themselves and, and switch that balance. That would require the big tech platforms to drive that change. I don't see these companies doing that. I look at the boards of these companies. They're basically very wealthy people. Um, they don't have anybody young on them. I mean, just take Google, for example. I think I worked out and I think I read that the average age of a, of a Google employee is 29. When I look at the board, I think the average age is 62. The youngest person on the board is 47. And I had a look through who's on it. Every single one of them is either a tech founder or a, or a billionaire, with one exception, a microbiologist professor, a lady, which is great. But I don't know, I don't know what she adds in relation to challenging uh, the thinking around how this company is run. Uh, you know, where is the ex-media regulator? Where is the child psychologist? Where is the parent? Where is the Gen Z representative? You know, these companies, I think, it seems to me anyway, are in denial. I don't think they have any intention of changing their focus. So, so I don't think we can expect, sadly, the software industry to reform itself. I think in, in the end, we will need regulation. Yeah, I mean, I'm very curious to see how that could actually happen because I can see this idea of, of closely regulating our social media use as something that could be very beneficial, but also still take away from the freedom to, to be on our devices and, you know, having our own autonomy and agency to engage with them however we would like. So I think well, that, I, that's, that, that's fine. If you're an adult, it's not fine. If you're a, if you're what we call in this country, a minor. So think about it. We don't allow, and you don't allow, you don't allow minors to go and buy alcohol without ID. You don't allow minors to go gambling without ID. You can't buy drugs without ID, but you can go onto the internet without ID. And the, and the internet, I would argue in part, is way more dangerous potentially than any of those things, right? So I think we, the first thing we have to examine is, is, is it okay to allow unfettered access to the internet to anybody who has a smartphone? And I think that's a mistake. Now, the UK is leading the world in this area. The government is introducing a suite of legislation uh, that starts with something called the Online Harms Bill. And this is, this is groundbreaking. So what this will do for the first time is um, create a statutory duty of care on the big tech platforms and, and, and app companies to assess whether their products and services are causing harm, particularly to youngsters. And if they are, they then have to take actions to mitigate those harms. And if um, and there's, a, there's an organization in the UK called Ofcom, it's our media regulator. And what that will do is then assess whether the company has taken sufficient action to mitigate the harms. And if not, it will fine the companies. So this is the first time I think anywhere in the world that anything like this has been tried. And if it works, I think it could be a model for the rest of the world. It's, there always has to be in any society a balance between liberty and the right to do what we want and protecting youngsters. And I, right now, I don't think we have that balance right. The second issue around all that is 
age assurance. So the second thing the government is doing in the UK is introducing um, something called the age appropriate design code. Now that says to the app designers, you have to design your products and services with the age of the user in mind. Uh, in other words, you can't just allow unfettered access to under 13s to, for example, pornography. And you have to take actions to protect them from the worst kinds of cyberbullying, hate speech, or God forbid, child grooming. So again, this is a first in the world, I think, to have anything quite of this, this sort, other than countries in Asia, which actually ban certain kinds of content from social media in the first place. But they tend to be what one might call totalitarian regime. So they're possibly doing it for a different reason. They're doing it in some cases because they don't want unhelpful news to the ruling regime being promulgated on social media. Okay, so you question their motives, although the effect of what they do may be helpful to, to children. So the UK, I think, is leading the world in this area. And these are two examples of ways in which we could improve things. Now, just on age assurance, most of the platforms have a, a watershed at 13. So you have, in theory, you have to be 13 to be on many of these platforms. We know from all the surveys that, that many children under 13 are on these platforms. They have their own social media accounts. They are lying to the platforms about how old they are when they apply. Even worse, many parents actually aid and abet uh, their children to get onto these platforms for the sake of their own peace uh, by allowing their children to lie or indeed helping them uh, by confirming that they're over 13. We know this from surveys, people admit this. So the industry will need to get better at working out your age. Now, very interestingly, I'm working with a company at the moment in Switzerland, which has groundbreaking technology in this area. So what happens at the moment is if you apply to a platform, they might ask you to send a picture. And from your face, they can estimate your age. And that may lead them to question whether you are over or under 13. They may ask you to send a short uh, voice clip of you, you talking. The problem with those two things are, the probability percentages of getting your age 100% correct from one picture or one voice clip is not very high. But using AI, what we can do is we can take both pictures, not a picture, but several pictures, and not a clip of your voice, but several clips of your voice. And we can triangulate with AI between the two and end up with a probability of more than 90% of predicting your age very accurately indeed. This is called a multimodal dynamic age assurance. It's very exciting. The most exciting thing of all about the, the company I'm working with is that for the first time, none of this data, so none of the pictures and none of the voice clips would end up with the big tech platform. They stay on your phone and the whole analysis is done within your phone. So there's no danger of any kind of privacy issue relating to pictures or voice clips of children ending up in the wrong place. So this is very exciting. Right. I was going to ask, you know, that could raise some issues with data privacy, but if it's staying within, you know, your own device, then in theory, it should be safe and, you, you know, you should have access to that data. I mean, I, I got a Facebook when I was nine years old, like that's very young. And I just got it because it seemed cool and it seemed fun. And I wish I didn't have it then because there was no need for a nine-year-old to be on Facebook. So if technology like that was around back in 2008, 2009, that could have potentially, you know, solved so many issues and, you know, had me not on Facebook at such a young age. And I, I mean, I saw it a lot amongst my friends as well. Like a lot of my friends at that time were getting Facebooks and, you know, I grew up with Instagram. It came out when I was maybe in seventh or eighth grade. And I, I agree. I don't think these platforms are designed for minors, for younger, for younger children. No, and I don't think in fairness, I don't think Facebook is the, is the worst platform. I think it's, uh, it, you know, it has all sorts of good and bad aspects to it. Instagram is probably less good. Um, Snapchat is probably less good. And Twitter, you know, is 
is pretty bad i would say for youngsters it has stuff on it that i i'm i you know in, in the course of researching the book i kind of looked at things i had no idea mm-hmm. were on twitter and the negativity the the abuse the language the imagery was shocking to me um and it's all there for anybody who has access to a twitter account i you know i would say maybe the same with reddit i'm not even that familiar with the platform but i know that's a very popular one as well and i think it's similar kind of to twitter that's really interesting that you mentioned reddit because it's worth it going back to why that exists and one of the reasons it exists it's a place where pretty much everyone has a fake profile um, and that that just causes us to stop for a minute and think about the concept of fakes on the internet if you look back at uh, the first quarter of last year, Facebook's own statistics show that they took down 2.2 billion Facebook, sorry, fake Facebook profiles in a quarter. That is equivalent to their entire installed customer base, right? So in three months, they removed as many users as they have in total. That's a staggering statistic. Now, the problem with fakes and not requiring people to identify themselves when they go onto a platform and in, and in particular age verify through a documentary process is that people can entertain, sorry, people can get into these, these worst forms of behavior that I listed earlier, cyberbullying, hate speech, child grooming, with no serious worry about being detected. And Reddit, of course, came out of the, I think, out of the culture of offense where, you know, uh, it's quite difficult now online to express a view that's an outlying view. You kind of have to sing with the masses, right? And um, Reddit, I think, you know, one of the reasons it exists is so people can say what the hell they like, but not be themselves. Um, uh, so it, it really goes to the heart of whether we should allow fakes on the Internet. Now, it's important here to distinguish between a fake profile and not having to identify yourself to the platforms. I actually have no problem with, broadly speaking, with people being able to call themselves something else. You know, if if Stella wants to call herself Sigma 349 on Reddit, fine. OK. But if you then use your your profile to go and bully someone else or to indulge in hate speech or, God forbid, as I said, to groom a child, then when that user complains about you to the platform, if you're using a fake profile and you haven't had to identify yourself, the platform doesn't know who you are. So they can't report you to law enforcement and it's very difficult to follow up. If you had to identify yourself to the platform, not that you couldn't have a fake name on the platform, but, but at least the platform knew who you really were. I think that would cut out 80% of the bad behavior overnight. Because there's more accountability. There would be be accountability for this unacceptable behavior. And I I don't think any reasonable human being can object to having to identify themselves to the platform if they still have the right to use a fake name on their profile. Um, So that's that's something I would be a big, big proponent of. The web libertarians will be gasping at the thought of this, but I'm (laughs) sorry. As I said, there's a balance in society between freedom and liberty, and on the other hand, protecting youngsters. And I don't think we've got that balance right. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up the the whole idea around fake profiles and bots. I mean, the, I recently watched this documentary, I think it was on Hulu, called Fake Famous. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was this experiment where normal average people were selected to become fake famous and become an influencer on Instagram. And so the researchers purchased like thousands of bots of fake accounts to follow these average people and to watch kind of their reality transform just through the rise of fake bots following their profile and then them becoming verified on Instagram. It really completely changed their mentality and their mindset and how they went about their day-to-day life. I mean, what we see on Instagram, the the rise of influencers and these 
figures that I think a lot of young people look up to for whatever reason, because they happen to be famous on Instagram, a lot of it just isn't real. It, it arises from something that's just not reality. And so to see this experiment come to life and see how the rise of, you know, becoming fake famous can really shift your mentality and impact your own well-being. Because I mean, one of the participants wanted to drop out of the study because he just didn't he didn't like how it felt to become fake famous. Really interesting point you raise. And of course, you know, the whole basis of social media peer to peer comparison is, as I said, this unfortunate habit that we have of comparing our average self or our worst self with everyone else's best self as presented in these, these you know, glitzy pictures that we see or video clips that we see on Instagram. Everywhere is wearing the best clothes with the best makeup, looking perfect in the most exciting places. Well, truth is the real world, as we know, isn't like that. We are setting ourselves up for the real world to be almost permanently disappointing. And that's one of the reasons that um, self-esteem and lowering of self-esteem is such an issue around social media. I think that's also why a lot of people, at least in my age and my generation, have done these digital detoxes because they're starting to realize the effects that social media, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, have on our self-esteem and our self-confidence because Instagram serves as like this highlight reel. You're seeing the best versions of everyone of themselves and it's not, it's not real. One of the interesting features about, about Gen Z is that, uh, as you say, when it comes to buying products and services, um, Gen Z is much more interested in what celebrities and influencers think that, and, and their friends think than they are in you know, formal advertising in the traditional uh, historic sense. But they also know that most of the influencers are not authentic for the reasons you just <laughs> outlined. And so they admit they know the influencer isn't authentic, but they still are interested in what they have to say. So it's, it's almost, um, you know, they, they almost fall for it knowing they're faltering, but they still fall for it. And that's where this, this negative feedback loop comes into play as well, because we can, we consciously understand, like we know that it, technology and social media isn't great for us in the way that these apps are designed yet we're still hooked. And despite knowing that this isn't actually good for us, and despite knowing that these influencers are inauthentic, we still gravitate towards that. And so back to your earlier point around like regulation, but also more importantly as well, like educating and providing digital literacy or digital education around how to engage with technology in a more mindful way, I think is so important. The earlier we can target younger people, the better, because my generation and generations to, to come are now growing up with this digital age. And you know, in the social dilemma, in the social dilemma, they were talking about how our our attention is the consumer, essentially. Like we tell, are... tell me what what age you think that we should be targeting uh, to educate children about the dangers of being online. I think honestly, like I think in elementary school, like starting around five or six. So did you know? Did you know that the majority of babies in the U.S. watch ninety minutes of screen time a day? Babies under one. And did you know that two to four-year-olds, most two to four-year-olds watch more than two hours of screen time a day? Wow. I did not know that. I did not know that. I mean, it just more, it's to your point about how invested we are in technology and how our attention is so divided. I mean, even the productivity cost of multitasking and having our attention be brought one place to the other. We might think we might think we're more productive, but we're actually less productive because the time it takes to switch between tasks is so two very interesting points around that. One is if you think about the way the world is developing and as, as AI becomes 
uh, a bigger and bigger influence on work and the robots come. Uh, what's left for human beings is basically the most complex things that only human beings can do, right? So humans will have to move up the scale in terms of their, their ability to do the most difficult things. At the same time that that's the case, we are being taught by our technologies to multitask and actually lose the ability to do anything with focus and concentration. So now we can't have a conversation without being interrupted by our devices. So as I call that, we can't deep attend or deep listen. We can't listen to music without also being on Snapchat or Instagram or doing a search. We can't be on Netflix without chatting at the same time. We can't deep watch, listen, attend, focus, concentrate in any way. We're constantly multitasking, what I call in the book, digital bees, kind of snacking and grazing on, on multiple honeypots simultaneously. Is that good for society at a time when what we actually need to do is, is develop the really uh, complex cognitive skills that are going to put us in a big, 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 uh, good position to be able to work when AI takes away the basic jobs? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's a hard question because I think we live in this culture of wanting to maximize productivity, wanting to get a lot of tasks done and thinking that if we're constantly busy, we're doing it right. And you, you, you mentioned distraction, which is what my book is about. I actually sat down and tried to work out what the productivity cost of distraction is. So if you just said that the average person in the UK works a 48-hour week, right, um, and said if we could, um, and then the, when we're at work, we're distracted by our devices, right, from working to do other things, just to chat with our friends on our telephones or whatever. I worked out that if you could find a way of the average employee spending half an hour less a week on their devices during which time they worked, the GDP that you would add to the economy would be about 48 billion pounds a year. That, by the way, is about a third of the cost of the entire National Health Service in the UK. Wow. It's actually, it's actually more than the annual education budget of the UK. Wow. So this, the productivity cost of distraction is enormous. Wow. That's, I mean, and then imagine if there was no productivity cost, it would be a huge gain financially for, you know, countries, their their economics, and just, I guess, in a way, we would have a more productive society if we weren't trying to multitask all the time. And, right. you know, another question that I have for you is, what got you so inspired to, to learn more about these topics and write this book coming from a background in finance and economics? You know, how did that help prepare you to write this book? Having three adolescent children who I watch growing up and how their personalities develop and how they see the world and use technology, number one. Number two, I guess my, my own experience of technology somewhat as a somewhat older person. And then thirdly, a couple of years ago, I adopted a New Year's resolution to meet 200 young Generation Z entrepreneurs. So over, over two years, I met, decided to meet one every day for two years, uh, every business day. And I've, so I've met a couple of hundred now and um, really meeting them and talking to them about their aspirations, their, the way they look at the world, cemented the views that I've encapsulated in the book. So it's based on personal research from, from meeting and talking to lots of young entrepreneurs. So if you're having these conversations with people maybe my age or a little bit older or a little bit, or a little bit younger, all the life experiences you've had up until you know this, this present day are shaped by the way in which the world was working at that time. And now we've seen this huge shift in how technology is kind of overtaking our world alongside other different cultural factors that you mentioned earlier. And so it makes sense that my reality or my, the way in which I perceive the world or people in my generation is now going to be different. And so having these conversations is so important 
because it allows a deeper understanding on both ends from both sides of, of the coin. The good news is that hour of the day that I spent with these young entrepreneurs was always the best hour of the day. And notwithstanding that I think my generation is bequeathing you a pretty miserable set of cards, right? I mean, we're, we're delivering you a damaged planet. You haven't known a time when there hasn't been a global war on terror. Uh, we're lumping you with a load of COVID debt. You know, that's not a great place to start, right? But incredibly, your generation seems to me to be very resilient, very thoughtful, have a very clear sense of social purpose, uh, social conscience and purpose. And indeed, many of the ideas that were pitched to me in these conversations were not, as I would call them, businesses. They were actually social social enterprises. In other words, your generation is very keen that, that the, the capitalist society that we've grown up with develops a wider purpose than just making money. It needs to be contributing to solving uh, the world's issues, whether it be climate change or anything else. And I think this is where the big tech companies really need to uh, get in tune with what youngsters think, because ultimately... It is your digital wallets that will drive the business's uh, profitability in the future. And I think, as I said, right now, the balance between profit and social good is not is not in the right place. Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks to, again, the importance of really understanding how to take control of our own attention again and how to engage with these devices in a more mindful way so that we aren't you know, subject to uh, having these devices and technology and big tech really take control of our lives and our well-being and knowing that you actually have the power within yourself to create a more positive experience. And, you know, if you're an adult, you you have more of that autonomy. But if you're a younger adult or a child, that needs to be kind of taught to you and and you need to be guided throughout that process as well. So I, I really admire all the work that you have done and all the research that you've done. And this book is just incredible and absolutely a must read. So I'm very excited for my listeners to grab a copy. Where can people find a copy of the book? Uh, very easy. It's on Amazon. It's on Kindle. It's on Audible and, and all the other you know uh, audio sites. Uh, or it's available from my, if you want a signed copy, you have to order it from my website. Or if you're not in a place where Amazon gives you free delivery, there is a company called www.bookdepository.com, which gives free worldwide delivery. It's actually part of Amazon, but you wouldn't know that. www.bookdepository.com and you'll find it there with free worldwide delivery. One last question I would love to ask you, and it's something that I ask all of my guests on the podcast is what is something that brings you a bit of endorphins every day? Oh, squash is my passion. So every morning at seven o'clock outside COVID, obviously, uh, I'm down at the squash court playing squash and there's no better uh, endorphin hit than a game of squash. Absolutely. I mean, getting yourself moving first thing in the morning, potentially watching the sunrise or being out, you know, first thing in the morning, getting the fresh air is definitely an endorphin boost. I like to be outside and be very active in the mornings as well. And to your point about the anticipatory nature of dopamine, it's actually anticipation of beating a 21-year-old at squash, which gets me going. <laughs> your children? <laughs> uh, uh, no, none of them have beaten me yet. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Bob. It was so wonderful to have you on the podcast. Stella, thank you so much for taking an interest in this really important subject. And I do hope that some of your listeners will reach out and read the book because I think they will, they will uh, identify with a lot in it and, and hopefully they'll agree with some of my conclusions and maybe even learn some, some, some means to digital detox. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as I was reading it so much, just, it was just, everything was kind of clarified to me about how we really are 
just addicted to our phones. And I mean, I, I loved how the book really also investigated the role of robots in society and kind of offering different viewpoints on the, the future of robots and how that may or may not take away from our actual empathetic connections with other people. So well, I mean, just, the book touches on so many incredible topics. Just, just to pique people's interest on the subject of robots. So I even go into the, the new trend towards sex robots. Um, and if you want to know how that's all going to develop, you should look at what's going on in Japan where uh, 30% of the men under 30 are virgins. Sorry, 30% of 30-year-old men are virgins. And youngsters in Japan go on state-sponsored courses to actually learn how to meet another human being. If you want to see how bad this could get, uh, this is no criticism of Japan because I love Japan and everything about it, but, but do do read that section of the book. It is, uh, it is uh, thought-provoking about where we might be headed in the West. I will leave our listeners on that because I think that will definitely pique a lot of people's interest. <laughs> Thank you again. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please follow, rate, review Everyday Endorphins on whichever listening platform that you use to stream my episodes. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.